0: Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, I will be talking with Mary O'Hara. Mary is writer and a longtime journalist for The Guardian, and has been writing about poverty for over 15 years. I speak with her about her recent book, The Shame Game, Overturning the Toxic Poverty Narrative, trying to understand why blaming and shaming of people in poverty is so endemic in the UK and the US, and what could be done to change this. Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to join this podcast. I read your recent book, The Shame Game, Overturning the Toxic Poverty Narrative, with great interest. I think it's an extremely important analysis of the narrative surrounding poverty in the UK and in the US. And so my first question really is, why did you decide to write the book? What prompted it?
1: Uh, well, the book is part of a much larger project uh, called Project Twist It, which I set up with funding from the Joseph Rowntree Foundation uh, back in 2018. The main purpose of that was to create a hub to tell the stories of people. With experience of poverty either currently living in it or people like myself who experienced it at a certain point in their lives to amplify the voices of people in poverty because I very much believed through my journalism and everything I'd observed that people who experience poverty tend to be either talked at or about and their voices are often completely hidden. You don't hear firsthand from enough people with lived experience. Part of that project was to create a legacy product in the form of the book, which would pull together all the stories that had come through that project, look at it in the wider context. So what is the impact of poverty on people's everyday lives, on communities, on our society? Now, because I report from the U.S., And I've written the two countries I've written most about are the UK and the US, and they are outliers when it comes to the way poorer people are blamed and shamed for their poverty. The book is concentrated on those two countries and it looks at the similarities in the way that poorer people are treated and talked about and how the policies that come out of that are deleterious to those people and asks what can we do about it? I mean, fundamentally, How do we change the way we talk about poverty? How do we challenge the stereotypes and the negative assumptions about people in poverty? How do we use all of that to help build a consensus around better policy that reduces poverty? And in the book, you speak a
0: lot about the blaming and shaming of those living in poverty and the stereotypes that are so prevalent. Your book speaks to this really powerfully. So why do you think there is so much shaming of people living in poverty, particularly in the UK and in the US? Why does it happen?
1: Well, there's a long, long history of poorer people being blamed for their own predicament. You know, you can go back in history in almost every country and the power structures in countries tend to exist because you suggest, you as a culture, suggest that those people who aren't further up the hierarchy must be somehow ineffective or defective as individuals. Now that kind of understanding has been turbocharged in the UK and the US and in particular over the past 40 or 50 years. So following the relative post-war consensus of the 50s and 60s, you have the rise of thinking around neoliberalism, for example, where everything to do with the state or government is bad and only private business is the generator of wealth and progress and growth in society. Part of that involves finding ways to demonize people who don't fit into that worldview. If you believe that people who are poor are individually to blame for that poverty, it's much harder to advocate, for example, for higher taxes on the wealthy because the narrative says that the wealthier they are through their own hard graft. It's all down to talent and hard work. So therefore, if you're not wealthy and successful, you mustn't be talented and you mustn't work hard. And that has become deeply and profoundly ingrained in the cultures of both of these countries. And that message is propagated through large swathes of the media, through think tanks. You know, the U S and the UK tend to have, very heavily funded think tanks that push these kinds of narratives and notions in a way that other wealthy countries don't. That solidifies the negative attitudes toward poorer people and low-income people, and it reduces the appetite for policies and action that would make people's lives better. It justifies things like deunionization, precarious work, low wages. The U.S., for example, hasn't increased its federal minimum wage in 10 years, and it's already terrible. So all of this stitches together in a way that has simultaneously run alongside widening inequalities in wealth. And that is amplified even more by the current situation that we're in with COVID-19. You know, the UK and the US are among the worst. In fact, the worst in the world when it comes to deaths. And a lot of this is related to this bigger picture of ingrained poverty and wealth distribution.
0: Hmm. And between those two countries, do you see any big differences? Uh, you just spoke about some of the similarities and overlaps, but are there also ways in which those two countries differ, both in the way in which poverty is experienced, as well as how people in poverty are being viewed?
1: Yeah, I mean, not as mu- not as many differences as you might think. I mean, so Britain, certainly in recent history, has tended to look to the US for inspiration rather than its continental European counterparts. Many of which have strong welfare systems. And therefore, there are a lot of similarities. The the most glaring difference between the two, of course, is healthcare. Mm. So the UK has its National Health Service. Uh, The US has nothing remotely resembling national health provision. So in the US, a lot of poverty is driven by lack of access to healthcare people you know, go bankrupt by the tens of thousands after getting medical bills. Uh, and again, this has been heightened even more um, in the current pandemic. Whereas at least in the UK, whatever the wealth of your family or the income or status of your family, the premise of the NHS is that you can get care that you need, at at the point that you go and ask for it without handing over a credit card, without having to worry about whether insurance companies are going to pay for that car. So that is a fundamental difference. Now, obviously in recent years in the UK, there has been a lot of advocacy work around privatizing certain parts of the NHS. It's been starved of resources, starved of staff, starved of funds. So it doesn't function in the way that it should because of that. And that means that the outcomes are you know, what they are. But as far as the US is concerned, health is absolutely pivotal to poverty because you can be thrown into it as a result of not having access to healthcare. Or the fact that healthcare is often tied to employment means that if you lose your job and you did have healthcare, well, suddenly you lose it. And what are you left with? It's, it's an enormous problem. So in the
0: book, you make it really very clear and evident how living in poverty is a shameful experience and, and the shame that goes with the experience of poverty. But you also describe shame as a tool or as a weapon in a way to to keep people poor. Can you describe what you mean with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, shame, culturally, is a really interesting tool. Uh, it is used From, you know, way back in the day and much smaller groupings of people to keep a group together. You know, if someone steps out of line, then they can be shamed into stepping back into line and that benefits the whole group. But shame can also be used to really damage people, to hold people back. There's a long history of it in women's history, for example, of shaming women when they so-called step out of line. And the same goes for poorer people. Now, the dynamic is basically that if you shame someone, if you basically blame them for circumstances beyond their control, then it's easier to keep those circumstances as they are. Now, part of the dynamic in the research around this shows that not only do poorer people get shamed repeatedly, but that for many people, that shame becomes internalized. So you begin to believe that that problem Is your problem because you're told it so often and like a lot of the interviewees that took part in project twisted and contributed to the book talk about this really vividly about how you begin to believe especially if you're a young person in poverty that you don't deserve anything better now if that's what you come to believe it is very very hard to fight against a system that has helped bring you to that belief it really does hold you back And it becomes kind of institutionalized as well as internalized. And it's an extraordinarily powerful thing to have to deal with.
0: Hmm. Now, as an opposite to this institutionalization and internalization of shame, you also discuss how this might be flipped around and how we could find potential solutions for changing negative narratives and stereotypes. So what is it that we can do to shift those narratives?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the entire project and the book started from the basis that if we don't hear from people with experience of poverty, how can we really expect to understand that experience? And how can we find solutions that deal with the issues faced by people if those people aren't participants in that process? So, for instance, you know, the old saying that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu completely applies to people in poverty and people on low income and it does come down to who has power and who doesn't so you ask yourself how can we begin to infiltrate the conversation around poverty so that it isn't this one-way distorted view Of poverty itself and the people who experience it, the first thing we can do is create a platform for people to put their viewpoints, their insights, and their stories out into the world. Because here's what we know we know that in human cultures, for time immemorial, telling our stories has had a huge impact in how we understand ourselves and how we shape our societies. It starts from that fundamental principle. It's why we had so many writers. And artists and musicians involved in the project and involved in the book. It was to try to find any way we possibly could to put these stories out, to put people's voices out there. So we had podcasts, comic strips, you know, we had all kinds of ways of communicating these stories. What was really important to me was that it didn't end up being sort of misery porn. or or fall into those particular traps where for me as the journalist, very often it's case studies that are used. Oh, here's a person in a terrible situation. Oh, let's feel sorry for them. Well, that's not what people want and it's not a healthy conversation because guess what? Even people who are really, really struggling have dignity and they have a right to have that dignity respected and to have their voices heard. So everything that we do that starts with that is a positive pushback, I believe, against this dominant narrative, this dominant story that we're continually being told. So all of this was intended to kickstart a conversation. But what I realized when I was doing the research, the more people I spoke to was that These conversations are being had already. Lots of people are beginning to talk about this. Organizations like ATD Fourth World, who have been actively working with people with lived experience of poverty to be agents for change, to be active in shifting the narrative and shifting the understanding of poverty at grassroots level, in academia, in the arts. Lots of work going on. It just isn't what you would define as a movement, say, in the way that the environmental movement is, but it's happening. And I've been writing about poverty for 15 years. So I have a little bit of perspective on why this moment might be slightly different. And I think in the UK, after 10 years of austerity, in the US with growing inequalities, I think there is a realisation I mean, it takes a while to take root, but there's a realisation that, you know, we can't keep going down this path. We have to think differently and we have to support each other to push back. And there's a lot of alliances being built. And this doesn't happen overnight, right? None of this happens overnight, but every little step forward that we take is a step in the right direction.
0: So maybe for those of us who are not writing about poverty or working on poverty, but who are becoming increasingly aware of the toxic nature of these negative narratives and stereotypes, and who would like to change this, what is some advice that you can give them? What can people do on a day-to-day basis to change things around? Well,
1: there's all kinds of things that people can do, and they can be big or small. If you volunteer at, say, a food bank, one of the first things you're going to realize is that the people coming in who are desperate for help are more like you than you probably previously imagined. So it makes sense to actually spend some time with people. Um, And that goes for every social issue, you know, spend, if you're talking about incarceration, spend time with former prisoners, talk to people. Now that's not an option for everybody because we live in this kind of weirdly segregated world where we all tend to move in our little bubbles. But if you're the kind of person that sees yourself um, as a compassionate person, as someone who wants to have an open mind, Then what you do when you hear someone say something negative about poorer people or about people in low-income jobs, you can call them out on that. But if we don't have those sorts of conversations in our everyday lives, then everything that is negative gets repeated ad nauseum. And that's why it ends up endemic. That's why it ends up entrenched. So people can challenge a person that has said, a friend who says something that is actually founded in ignorance, call them out on it. But equally, you can do small things that help your community, that put you in situations outside of your comfort zone, and see what happens. And like I guarantee people will realize that we have much more in common than we have that divides us. Any steps that we can take to break down those barriers is really important. And as you know, I write about my own personal story in this book, which is not something that I usually do. And my experience growing up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles was... Pretty fundamental to how I understand these things because, you know, I lived in poverty as a kid and adolescent, but I also lived in a segregated society where we could not go to school with kids of another religion, for instance. We had to actively seek out people from the other side of that political and religious divide to try and understand each other more. So I, I sort of understood as a very young person that the only way to understand each other is to talk to each other. And it sounds kind of woolly sometimes, but it wasn't woolly for people like me who were physically divided from kids just like us by actual walls. The minute I was able to put myself in environments with those kids, I knew they weren't that different from me. And I honestly think that that is really fundamental to change. And the young people that we worked with at Project Twisted and for the book, God, did they get this? You know what I mean? Their, their belief systems were not set in stone and they were so open, including the kids from you know wealthier backgrounds. They were so open to this whole idea, to their generation not carrying these prejudices and these stereotypes into the future. And I find that very encouraging, much in the way that the younger generation are pushing for reforms that will aid the environment and avoid catastrophe there. I was like really encouraged by the fact that they just got it. You know what I mean? They got it.
0: Now you already mentioned the situation that we're in at the moment with COVID-19. And how this will play out um, in terms of structural inequalities, laying bare some of those structural inequalities. But what happens, do you think, in terms of the shame associated with poverty? There is talk about we're all in this together. It might be equalizing things between all of us. And at the same time, those living in precarious conditions are definitely more exposed to infection and also more exposed to the socioeconomic fallout of the pandemic which may have its own repercussions in terms of stigma and shame. So what do you think will happen? Will there be a reinforcement of stereotypes or might this be a shift the other direction?
1: Well, I think, I mean, that's one of the key debates that will come out of this because, as we've seen, I mean, there are many interlocking issues here, but as we've seen, it's people who are on low incomes, in low-paid jobs and in precarious jobs who are on the front line every single day to keep our societies functioning it turns out that the people who we we believed were unimportant or marginal are the most essential people in our society outside of the medics and the people in that sphere who are fighting every single day to save lives there can be absolutely no doubt that a lot of people will have been quite shocked and woken up by the fact that they have their everyday lives, ignore these people in the past. Now that's a good thing. It's a really good thing that we are recognizing that, that it's being understood. The question becomes what happens after, right? So does complacency set in? Are we just so glad to get the hell out of this mess that we go back to the status quo? Or do we keep the sense of solidarity that a lot of people have felt Um, and fight for better jobs, better protection in those jobs, better wages, greater respect for people in those low-paid jobs. Because let's face it, especially in the UK, a lot of the people in poverty are in work. Working poverty is a huge issue. Now, you've got that side of it. You've also got the side of it, which is absolute economic catastrophe for hundreds of thousands of people, you know, people who have ended up losing their jobs as a result of this, people who might have thought that they were, you know, they were okay, they were sort of comfortable, and then are just literally, they've got nothing, they've lost their job, they're having to apply for universal credit. For the first time, there will be a lot of people who are beginning to see the quagmire that is the benefit system. And one of the things that the book focuses on quite a lot is what it feels like to ask for help, what it feels like to go through the benefit system. And how much of that system is built to make you feel bloody awful, to really shame you into not applying for benefits. It's a deeply disturbing, deeply unhealthy system. And my last book, Austerity Bites, documented that in terms of what austerity did with all the benefits changes that came in. So I think more people will get an understanding of the fact that the systems are stacked against people getting the help that they need to get back on their feet. Because that's what it comes down to. It's not like loads of so-called skyvers and scroungers just trying to fleece the system. It's people trying to get the little bit of help that they need to get from A to B, to provide for their families, to put a roof over their heads. It's that basic. Now, all of that, I think, creates a potential for a shift in the way we think about this issue. The problem we've got is that it could go either way. Because in times of great crisis... Societies can go down the route of, say, the post-war consensus in Britain, where there was an understanding that, you know, people should have a decent home to live in. People should have protection in their work. And kids should have a decent education. And there's a collectivism that is involved in that. Or we go down the route, and we've seen a lot of this even before the COVID-19 crisis, of the rise of the populist right and the demonization not just of people of lower economic means but of all kinds of other groups and you know that path brings with it an enormous amount of danger but there are really really positive signs i think that people are beginning to understand some of these structural inequities and that people aren't to blame because you know what it could happen to any of us this pandemic arrived the world changed just like that and therefore we have an opportunity to do things differently. The question is whether we take that opportunity.
0: Well, thank you very much, Mary, for pointing us to that opportunity and also for calling on us to move in that positive direction, countering uh, negative stereotypes that may still exist, may take hold or be reinforced, and to build on the momentum that really you have already been working on for such a long time with Project Twisted and now with your book, So thank you very much for joining us. If people want to know more, how can they find out?
1: People can follow me on Twitter at Mary O'Hara1. That's nice and easy. Um, The main thing that I'm trying to do is spread the word. So if your listeners can spread the word on social media, if you have the means, buy the book, you know, but be part of it. That's, That's what I hope, that people will be part of it.
0: Great. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, visit us on poverty-unpacked.org and follow the site on social media. We'd love to hear from you. And we also hope that you will join us again for the next episode.